Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning grateful for the truths that we just sang, that the victory is Christ's, that your plan for salvation was perfect, and that your Son came and purchased decisively salvation, justification, our righteousness. He purchased everything for us. And we can't help but sing praises to his great name this morning. You are such a glorious and wonderful God, and we are thankful that we can come before you with one voice, as one body, singing one praise, one sacrifice to you of praise and worship. And as we seek now to worship you through understanding your word, hearing your word, I pray you would be with each of us as, as your word opens our eyes, opens our minds, and, and strengthens our hearts to walk in a manner worthy of what you've called us to be as believers. And I also ask that if there is anyone here this morning that has not put their trust in Christ, that as they hear your word expounded, as they see your character and what Christ has called us to be, that you would show them their great need for a Savior. Show us all this morning that we have a great need for a Savior. That you would open their eyes. Your word says that you open the eyes of the blind. Open all of our eyes now and draw us nearer to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, if you'd like to join me in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue to look at what are normally called the Beatitudes. There are eight of them. They are from verses 2 through 12 of chapter 5. The last time we were together, you and me, uh, we looked at the first four of those Beatitudes, starting in verse 2 through verse 6. And I tried to show you that these first four Beatitudes point us upwards toward God and our need for him to reveal to us our state and what our response to that would be. So we realized that we are poor in spirit in verse 3. And that being poor in spirit brings us to a state of mourning in verse 4. But we are those who have also inherited a kingdom from heaven and God comforts us in that mourning. And then from that, he gives us this godly humility that, that comes out in godly meekness in verse five. And that leads us to hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that comes from God in verse six. We need this righteousness, we crave it, and we, all the while we are blessed in our pursuit of these things. These states of being, being poor in spirit, mourning and being meek are all blessings, God says. Blessed are those who are in this state. We know that we, we landed last time that it was all done by, by the grace that God supplies through our glorious Savior, the God-man who is preaching this sermon, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at the second half of the Beatitudes. And just to remind us again, what is the definition of a, of a Beatitude? 
or the word beatitude means. It's, it's blessedness, which is why every, every verse starts with the word blessed. It's happiness of the highest kind. Bliss, often used as the joys of, of heaven. So that's what we're, we're seeking and pursuing and what Jesus calls us to pursue in this sermon on the mount. And now we're going to look at the second half of these Beatitudes. And, and the question that we're going to be asking is, what does being a follower of Christ look like regarding our neighbors? So remember, before we even get started, that, that this is a, a, a preaching that Jesus did to his followers. We are not learning how to enter God's kingdom, but we are, we're learning what does it look like to be part of God's kingdom? What, what is someone that follows Christ, what does he do? What does he or she do? What does it look like? How are they blessed? So let's pick it back up in verse 7 of chapter 5, which says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we begin here with this move laterally towards how we treat those around us. And it says that those who are blessed are merciful. So those who are truly and deeply happy and content are those who exhibit mercy to others. As we think about this, how do, how do we define mercy? And I found a rather long definition, but I think it's helpful. It says, uh, mercy is benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart, which which causes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. It tempers justice and it causes the injured person to forgive trespasses and forgive injuries, to forego or forbear punishment or to inflict less than the law or justice would warrant or require. It implies benevolence, tenderness, mildness, pity, or compassion, but it's exercised only towards offenders. And then I, I pulled this from um, the Webster's Dictionary from the 1800s, and he ends it with, mercy is the distinguishing attribute of the supreme being. So if we put this together, what we see is that it's, it's compassion for those who are in pain, misery, or distress, but there's also this understanding of it's, it's regarding punishment and putting off punishment, even though punishment might be due. But what's really jarring about what Jesus says, though, is that it's not just a specific act in time, but it's a state of being. We are to be full of mercy. So Jesus says that those who are meek and those who hunger for righteousness will, will be in this state of offering and doing acts of mercy on those who do not deserve it. So as followers of Jesus Christ, our default posture is one of giving mercy to our neighbor. What, what does this look like? What, what, what is Jesus calling us to be, practically speaking? And I think probably the best example of this in Jesus' own teaching is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you want to join me in Luke chapter 10, we're going to grab a couple of, of points out of there. So you remember it, hopefully, as we're, you're turning there. It's the, the parable that Jesus tells to a lawyer. It's in chapter 10, starts in verse 29. And as you're turning there, just to remind us of, of what we see is that this, this lawyer is seeking to justify himself and says, so who is my neighbor? That's the question on the table. Who is my neighbor? Okay, Jesus, I'll agree that I need to be kind to my neighbor or whatever, but who is that 
person. And then Jesus tells the parable, you remember it, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Robbers attack him and leave him for dead. But now we see in verse 31 that a priest comes down the road. He sees the guy, passes on the other side of the road. Verse 32, a Levite comes and does the same thing. So we've got these two um, people, priest and Levite, who are meant to be kind of the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And we see them shirking their responsibility, going to the side of the road, other side, just ducking the guy. And who shows up but a Samaritan? And you might say, so what? But just to remind us all, Samaritans and Jews did not mix. It was not a friendly, merciful relationship. And Jesus says very pointedly in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came and he saw him. And this is verse 33 still. He had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus then turns to the group in verse 36 and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the, the lawyer has to say what, what, what he has to say, the, the one who the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So Jesus uses this example to explain to us what it means to be full of mercy. Though Samaritans and Jews did not get along, that didn't abdicate the responsibility for that person to be merciful. And Jesus says, if you're a follower of me, you will care for even your enemy. And the Christians for the last two centuries have called feeding the poor and caring for widows mercy ministries. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It was so baked into the life and the mind of Christians that Jesus commanded us to be merciful that we had a whole section of ministry called mercy, mercy ministries. And I think that comes out of James chapter 1 that says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Uh, James also says in his letter, in, in his second chapter, he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, so James, Jesus' brother, gets this and carries it forward. And, and really what, what Jesus is saying and, and what we're, we're drawing from this is mercy and care for the less fortunate is how the disciple lives. Jesus doesn't just give marching orders or specific ways to do mercy ministry, he gives us something far better, the Holy Spirit. God has led men and women to start schools, food pantries, homeless shelters, hospitals, and on and on because the Spirit's prompting us and, and fellow believers from previous lives to say, the one who is blessed, the one who is truly happy is the one that is doing the acts of being merciful. So obviously, is this always easy? Well, of course not. No one's saying it is. Is, is showing mercy something that we will do at 100 miles an hour for our entire life? I don't, I don't know that that's the takeaway either uh, because I don't think this, the idea of, of the amount of, of, of acts you do is the point because we're not earning salvation. We're not earning anything from God by being merciful. Remember what he says in the second half of verse 7 is he says, for they shall receive mercy. 
See, we don't earn mercy either. We are gifted mercy. This is saying that, that we received mercy from God, so we carry out the marks of our Savior. Those who are saved by grace and follow Christ will be marked by giving mercy because we've been given mercy. And as a byproduct, we will often receive mercy from others occasionally as well. We're not earning salvation and we're not tricking others into giving us mercy. That's, that's manipulation. But what we're doing is being devoted followers of God. In verse 8, we see that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we know that the heart is, the, is a biblical way to express the, the seat of personhood. So who you are in a non-technical sense is called the heart or the soul or your being. There's a lot of different ways to say it, both in the Bible and outside of it, but the general idea is, is who you are at a base level. And even that personhood is marred by the fall and sin. We are not basically good people. Even to our core, we need renewal. This is why Jesus calls us to be pure of heart. We must change much deeper than just with the, eternal, the external works of our hands. But we're changing in our hearts. Let's look at some text real quick about this helping us understand this idea of purity. Jesus speaks more about it in Matthew. Turn with me to chapter 15. If, as you're turning there, we see that Jesus in chapter 15 is, is doing battle, unfortunately, again with the Pharisees and scribes. And the questions are coming up again and again. And starting in chapter 10, there's questions, our, chapter 15, verse 10, we're, we're, we're seeing questions about the foods people can and can't eat. And, and the disciples are asking Jesus about, you know, what is it, what can or should we eat? How does this defile us or not? But in verse 18, Jesus makes the point, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So he's saying it's not what you eat or what you take in, but what comes out of your mouth, what proceeds from your heart is what defiles a person. He says, going on in verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to, eat what, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus is saying you're missing the point if you're trying to figure out what, does, what should I eat or what should I not eat, what should I do. But Jesus is saying it's not what you do, it's who you are that matters. And he says the same thing about the Pharisees in chapter 23 of Matthew. In verse 25 he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So the indictment Jesus is giving to the Pharisees is, you look good on the outside. Maybe they're doing acts of mercy on the outside. Maybe it looks like you're being or doing or, or you're, you're acting a certain way, but he's saying the problem is not what you look like on the outside. But, but that alone doesn't give us the barometer that we need, which is what, what are our hearts. So we need something. We need something to happen to create this purity of heart. And let me read to you um, from Titus chapter 3. Jesus 
makes this teaching clear and it just gets picked up throughout the different, the different writings of the gospel. And so when Paul goes to express salvation, he says it this way in Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, right? So to use Jesus's context, not because you do acts of mercy, but he says, but according to his own mercy. So notice who's mercying who there. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we see this idea of, of purity of heart is, is salvation. It's, it's being renewed. And one more for now in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this. 22, Peter, again, Peter would have been there, heard this message. And when he goes to speak uh, and write his own letter. He's, he's infused with these, these phrases from Christ. And he says in verse 22 of chapter one, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter is saying, because you have been born again, you can now love out of a pure heart and care for those who are your brothers. And we can find many more texts. This is just meant to try and walk us through this idea of, of we're dirty on the inside, we need to be cleaned. And the answer is Christ's work of salvation, which purifies us. We, will, we cannot do or be what we aren't forever. We will revert back to our natural state of being. And if we are trying to love our neighbor or do acts of mercy by the strength we supply or to earn anything from Christ, we lack pure hearts. And we are not living a blessed life. Because purity of heart brings blessing and purity of action. James 4, so again, James picking up this idea in his letter says, he gives grace to the humble but he opposes, opposes the proud. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. So remember, this is written by Jesus, and, and the, 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 the apostles and the writers of the New Testament pick it up, but Jesus is speaking to these new followers, and he's saying that this purity of heart comes in a real way at conversion. And it is pursued and, and even more purified through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit as we live out Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for those, for it is God who is at work in you both to, to will and to work. So God purifies us in a real sense when we are changed and then he calls us to walk out this purified heart through, sancti through growing in our Christ likeness. And the question then is what comes with this blessing? We see in the second half of verse eight is that they shall see God. So the beatitude is those who are pure in heart shall see God. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think a good hinge verse that ties both this verse and then the next verse, chapter nine together is Hebrews 12, 14 which says this. I'm going all over the place, so if you can't keep up, that's okay. And I also used all my little ribbons so that I wouldn't get lost. So 1214. So again, the, the next 
Beatitude will be about being peacemakers. And so again, the author of Hebrews is, is grabbing this imagery and putting it together. So in 1214, he says, strive for peace with everyone. So hold on to that. That's the next Beatitude. But then what does he say? After that, he says, for, and also strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we see the, the New Testament authors have picked the ball up and are running with this idea that, that part of being, seeing God is pursuing holiness. Uh, Peter will say in 1 Peter 1, 18, be holy for I am holy. And Jesus is saying, be pure of heart. One of the many blessings of salvation in Christ Jesus is following him and being made into his image. And the image of Christ being molded into Christ-likeness includes holiness. It is a gift. It is a blessing. And those who pursue it by the grace that God supplies will not be disappointed. But you will be truly and fully happy. So let us run with endurance the race set before us, becoming like Christ so that we will capture the promise that we will see God. Well, if you're not in radical life overload, let's look at verse 9, which says in back in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is peace? In a general sense, it's a state of quiet or tranquility. It's also freedom from disturbance or agitation. It can be applied to society, to individuals, or even to the mind which is just a roundabout way of saying you know it when you see it, maybe. I don't know. It's not a great definition, but that was the best I could find. But I think when it comes to peace, I think we understand what peace is, generally speaking. It's peacemakers that pursue outcomes like peace or quiet, tranquility, freedom from disturbance or agitation amongst each other. And as with Jesus' teachings, like all of them, we're understanding that the words are not the problem. We understand what, what the words peacemaker mean. He speaks plainly and clearly. The harder part is walking it out. And, and the, along with being merciful, the, the jarring fact that Christ says, this is total commitment to peace. Yes, the promise is sweeping. We will be completely happy, joyous beyond all measure, more than anything this world can offer because we're nearer to God, but the action is steep. We must create peace. We must go for peace. We must ask for peace. We have to make peace. And that's not always easy. And what's wild is Jesus knew that. Jesus will, will go on to say in Matthew chapter 10, again, that, that he's not even guaranteeing you peace in your own families. By nature, when Jesus said being devoted to him will cause division, possibly even with their own families. In verse 34 of chapter 10, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I have come to bring not peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So now don't, don't go off into the weeds there and say, okay, now I'm going to go not be great with my family. No, I just think the point he's making is He's just in a very vivid way saying the relationships that you thought were the closest in this life can be uprooted by devotion to God. Right? Could be a friend, could be anybody, could be any friend that you have before or after conversion. He's just saying there's, it doesn't matter how near you are either by blood or by friendship. 
Christ can be divisive because he is, our devotion to him is so total. So Jesus understands that, that peace is difficult and can sometimes not be found amongst even those who are related by blood. And what's even more interesting is that, again, this is another theme that gets picked up by the New Testament writers. Paul writes about it masterfully in Romans 12. Let me read to you from there. So Romans 12, uh, Paul is, is writing uh, now some, some practical steps outside of this, this long stream of thought about God and, and doctrine. He says, so what does it look like? And he says, starting in verse 16 of chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, which again, sounds to me a lot like mercy. Never be wise in your own sight. Here we go, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, riffing on, I think, mercy and, and showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. Now, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, we're seeing the mashing together of being pure of heart and merciful and being a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker is, as so far as it depends on you, live at peace. So, so what does it look like to make peace? Well, is there, is there strife in your life? Be the one to take the step to resolve the issue. Don't wait for others to move to you, but be the one who is the peacemaker. Are you concerned that someone is upset or doesn't fully understand your last conversation? Pick up the phone and address it. Be the one who makes peace. Don't hold a grudge and let the strife build a wall that is too high for either of you to climb. Because when it comes to being peacemakers, we know it when we see it. But we don't often do what we need to do to, to make it happen. But yet Jesus says, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be truly happy in the greatest sense of the word? Make peace. Then he says, what, what is connected to these peacemakers? Is that they get the promise of being sons of God. Which could have gone a lot of different directions in Jesus' day. The rest of the New Testament had not been written yet. So calling believers sons of God was not probably the most popular thing Jesus could have said. But again, just like we've seen with these other phrases, the New Testament writers see this and take it. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that for all of you that are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, the reason we can call God Father is because we are his children. We sang that this morning. He goes on to say in verse 17, if you are children, then you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So those who are in Christ and who are following him, we will be sons of God. We'll be able to call God Father and we will dwell forever with God and Christ in eternal paradise. 
we will be sons and we will see God and we will dwell together for eternity. But we also must assume that Jesus is referencing himself here. Those who make peace are now acting as Jesus acted. Jesus came to make peace. He made peace between God and us, being the one mediator between God and man. He made peace with us in every way. And if you remember from Ephesians chapter 2, he made peace amongst different peoples. In chapter 2.15, he says, uh, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, that's us, and peace to those of you who were near. That was ethnically Jewish people that knew their Old Testament. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we see Christ not only brought connection to us and, and he broke down, he made peace between us and God. He also made peace between Jew and Gentile. And, and part of a, a big part as to why God calls us to be peacemakers is so that we can dwell in unity together as one body in Christ. Because I think too often we think about Peacemaking being, I've got to make peace with the unbelieving world, or I've got to make peace with my, my unbelieving friend from college who doesn't, who doesn't know Christ, and I need to be a good witness. And that is true, yes and amen. But what about here? What about our closest relationships in the body? Being peacemakers means that, that we are breaking down the wall of hostility. Just like God broke down the first century church between Jew and Gentile, we now break down the walls that we build in our churches, in our family here too. We're constantly peacemakers. And Jesus says, do you want to be blessed? Pursue it. Now he knows and he says, Paul said very clearly that as far as it depends on you, it's not always possible. And we're going to see that in just a second as we look at the final beatitude, which is really almost like a, like a mega beatitude. It's, it's longer than the rest. But it's back in chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So don't let this beatitude confuse you based on the previous beatitude. Because you might be asking yourself, why even make peace if I'm going to find myself being persecuted? Well, we should first understand that we make peace to the best of our ability, but the world is sinful and even our best attempts can come up short. Don't be discouraged by this, but trust that God knows what he's doing. And we see in these verses that he is offering us a great reward for enduring persecution. Isn't that just like God? What a God we serve. That he would call us to peace. He would call us to make peace. He would tell us that we are blessed when we make peace. But then if peace cannot be achieved, 
and we endure persecution, then our reward becomes great in heaven. What a God. I, to, to see that, to say, God, you're blessed when you make peace and you're blessed when you can't make it. There's no route that doesn't end in blessing for the believer. Doesn't mean it's easy. I'm not saying that. I'll say more about that. But it's just in the character and nature of God that he would be this way. So we see back in verse 10 that those who are blessed are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Righteousness' sake. Excuse me. Jesus is saying that when you do right, when you follow the clear commands of Scripture and instead of having honor in the sight of God and man, you receive persecution, you know that's not right. And not the way it's supposed to be, but it's happening to you. The good news is God expects it and offers a blessing for it. But we must be doing the work of our Father when the persecution comes. There's no blessing for those who are sinning and operating outside of God's plan for this life. So is there forgiveness if we're being persecuted for unrighteousness sake? Yes. But the blessing comes when we do right and we receive wrong. When we make the right decision at work and the company wants to do the wrong thing and you lose your job. That's what Jesus is talking about. When you try to speak the truth about God's plan for redemption, you get called closed-minded or worse. That's being persecuted for righteousness sake. The beatitude seems to end there because he ends with verse 11, theirs is the kingdom of God, which is just how he started in verse three of chapter five. So you would think it, it, he'd tie it off in a nice little bow there and remind us that those who are poor in spirit and those who are persecuted uh, are both kingdom, both in the kingdom of the alliteration. It just seems so perfect. But he has more to say about being persecuted. In verse 11, he says that, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, Jesus is going from third person, those people out there, those who are persecuted. He now makes it second person. He says, when you are persecuted. And not only does he point it at us, you and me, or he says to you, he also expands and upgrades these to three types of persecution. He says, he says uh, you are reviled Verse 11, persecuted. And when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus's account. So first, to be reviled means to criticize in an angry or, or abusive, insulting manner. So this isn't just mean words, but think agitated, angry. These words have some bite in them. The, there's contempt in the waters. And next he says persecute, but we haven't defined it. So just to be clear, to be persecuted is to be harassed by troubles or punishments unjustly afflicted, particularly for religious opinions. And then finally, he says, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, which is also known as lies. We all know what a lie is. An untruth, something that is not accurate. But what's concerning is that these lies are not white lies, but they are evil lies. And not only are they lies, but they, they are lies in regard to Jesus. It's charged to his account. He is the one that is causing those lies to be told. See, Jesus was polarizing in all the right ways. His words required a response. You can either believe and be blessed or not believe and lie about the truth. Humanity does not have the luxury of being indifferent to Jesus Christ. We also know that humanity will always misunderstand 
his disciples. In chapter 10, verse 22, it says that um, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And right after expanding this understanding of persecution, he expands the blessing that we have as well. So counterintuitively, Jesus says, you should rejoice and be glad, verse 12, chapter 5. Why? How can Jesus say this? Do we need a lobotomy? Does he, does he give us some sort of spiritual amnesia? I don't think that's what he's saying there. No, he's telling us to look forward to the reward. A reward that is great and a reward that is found in heaven. Jesus is saying that we have to look past our circumstances and to the future reward. We must lift our eyes to see that though our immediate situation is difficult, and obviously it is, we have hope. Biblical hope is found in the promises of God. We trust the promises of Christ and the Beatitudes that this is but a moment, but our blessing is for all eternity. And then finally, Jesus puts those who are persecuted in these ways in amazing company. They sit with the Old Testament prophets. We saw that at the end of verse 12. In the same way Christians are persecuted for being the clarion call for Christ today, the Old Testament prophets were calling for the same coming Messiah who is now here. So we sit among the great names of the Old Testament when we endure and receive persecution for Christ. And we also receive a great blessing. So what about you? As I said just a moment ago, humanity does not have the luxury of being indifferent to the message of Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you that Jesus is speaking to you today, first admit that trying to earn God's favor or Christ's salvation is not possible. All of us like sheep have wandered astray, Isaiah 53 says, and Romans 3 says, all have fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So we wander and we fall short because we pursue sin. And sin is any thought, word, act, or desire that goes against God's revealed word. We all have done this and do this. And because that this is our state before God, he says that the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. God only accepts Death. There's one payment required for sin, and it is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Christ would go on from this message that we're reading today to live a perfect life and sacrifice his body to God on the cross to offer salvation to all. Jesus offered that payment through the blood and death. He was also resurrected and he ascended and he now sits at the right hand of the Father. Today he is continuing to seek and save the lost. If you've never put your trust in Christ for salvation, turn to him today. The Bible says in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And finally, for those of you who are trusting Christ this morning, just be reminded of what Christ is telling us. He is so gracious to us. He gives us blessings to follow his commands. He gives us life and joy and opportunities to rejoice. And even in the trials we endure. And everyone who's been a believer for any length of time knows that trials can be hard. We don't often see straight when we're in them. 
But let the word of God wash over you this morning. As we close, let me remind you from 2 Corinthians 4. says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, meaning they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our Messiah, our Savior, has told us how to be blessed. He provides us the grace and the strength to pursue it and the righteousness required to be sons of God. So remember as you leave here today, we do not earn God's salvation by following the Beatitudes, but God gives us the grace as followers of Christ to live in a way that glorifies him because Christ gives us everything. He gives us all that we need in this life that we might be sons of God. So praise his holy name and praise him for the grace to receive this blessing that comes through our obedience. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are thankful this morning that you have shown us the truth that you save and you save to the uttermost. And you give us grace and you give us the strength to pursue the blessings that you call us to partake in. Thank you that you bless us through all of these different ways. Thank you that Christ's message is so clear. Those who are pure of heart show mercy and make peace, endure trials, all for the blessing and glory and and joy that's set before us. Because God, you are so good. And Christ, you are such an awesome Savior. We praise your holy name. It's in Christ's name that we pray this morning. Amen.